Hello everyone and welcome to another podcast episode. Now before we get into this, I'd just like to talk about something that happened recently that's really interesting. A wealthy businessman contacted me saying that he'd like to inject some cash into this project and the content that I'm producing. Now he explained it like this. He said that he can see from my work that I want to go worldwide with this content. But at the moment, relatively, I'm a small platform. But to make progress and to make it quickly, you do need an injection of cash and I agree with him i do need to update the website the branding and all the logos because i actually created those around three years ago so they're outdated now and they don't actually serve the way we talk about these platforms including the separation of jeremy indica and something to say which is the story within itself so i was actually really excited to be approached by this man but unfortunately the conversations just naturally fizzled out he's no longer in conversation with me but i was very very thankful that i attracted this type of attention from somebody who was willing to put their money into something that they believed in. Now, this is great for me. It shows me that we're working, we're working hard, we're working smart, and this content is evolving and reaching a a, a varied amount of people. So we're gonna continue with that. We're gonna continue moving forward because as I always say on this podcast, anything is possible and, and I believe that we can achieve it. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome to another podcast episode where I have an incredible guest called Dr. Sophie King-Hill who's going to be speaking to us about sibling sexual abuse and many topics that surround it. Now I know that this is the taboo inside the taboo is what I've seen since doing this work and I just want to open this conversation. I think it will relate and and um, uh, arrive at so many people's table that would be interested in this or maybe they've even gone through it so let's start this conversation off thank you very much sophie for coming on to my podcast okay thanks for having me brilliant and could you just introduce yourself uh, to everybody listening please yeah so my name's dr sophie kinghill i'm an associate professor at the university of birmingham um so i'm an academic not a clinician uh, i think that's really really important to point out um much of my research centres around sexual behaviours of children and young people that goes from the healthy all the way up to the harmful. I'm a huge advocate for youth voice and for listening to young people, but also exploring these issues within the current context into which they're situated. You know, I think that that's really vitally important without shame and without taboo. So we can really unpick this and minimise harm in the in the long term for children. and young people. Okay, amazing. And can you tell me a little bit what the difference between an academic and a clinician is? Okay, so I'm not front-facing. I'm not a medic. Uh, I don't work directly in the field with children and young people that have carried out harmful sexual behaviour. I study this topic and we work together with clinicians and professionals in the field to to give a joined-up approach to working with children and young people. Okay, so that's amazing. And you've... um given the terms um, harmful and healthy sexual behaviour, would you say harmful and healthy sexual behaviour with children? Yeah, yeah. And we can, I mean, we can talk about language uh, after I kind of set out the issues in terms of sibling sexual behaviour. But it's very, very important when we're talking about children in this arena that we're careful with the language that we use. So in terms of 
if there was a child that's displaying harmful sexual behavior that's how we would that's the terminology we would use we wouldn't okay. call them a perpetrator um, right. we we would say it's a they are a child carrying out harmful sexual behavior and that stems from a lot of the work from from Simon Hackett uh, who developed a continuum in this area that 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 really explored the different levels of harm that a child can display so there was normal inappropriate problematic abusive and violent but it's very it, this is a crucial element of uh working in this field that we're very careful with the language that we use okay wow that's so that's so fascinating i just need to quickly i just need to quickly go over that again so we don't say we don't call children who are showing harmful sexual behavior we don't call them perpetrators no they are showing signs or acting out harmful sexual behavior is that correct yeah or displaying harmful sexual displaying behavior. And then when we were to, when we would look at that harmful sexual behavior that's being displayed, um, in some situations we would categorize it using on, on a scale of some sort. Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay, um, that's really interesting and really useful too because um, there's uh, lots of anger towards offenders and mm -hmm. perpetrators, and I've always wondered in my own work, well, what happens when we start talking about the 13 year old or even the nine year old that is displaying harmful sexual behavior how do we even label that or should we even so uh, thank you for that so um the main topic that i was really interested in speaking with you about is sibling sexual abuse um maybe i could just <laughs> let you let you start that discussion okay so i think if we we could stick with the, the language okay topic at the moment if you want to yes so when i first came to this this research area so this was in 2020 we would call it sibling sexual abuse i led half of the home office funded national sibling sexual abuse project with professor kira mccartan from the university of the west of england so it, four years ago so this shows you how language evolves so four years ago we were calling it sibling sexual abuse however there's been a lot of thinking that has gone in gone on in this in this arena over the last four years and a term that's been advocated by the CSA Centre and by Stuart Allardyce and Peter Yates, who are the leads in this area as well, is that we need to start calling it sibling sexual behaviour because, okay. again, it exists on a continuum. And uh, Allardyce and Yates came up, they merged the Hackett continuum with this line of thinking with sibling sexual behaviour and have now looked at it on, a, on, on the scale of developmentally appropriate inappropriate problematic and abusive okay. so again we've got to be really aware of the language that we're using but we it's also something to consider that language will always evolve so whatever mm. we're calling something now we've got to be aware especially when we're talking about children and young people that in five years time we might not be using the same terminology and we, we just have to accept that as a society you know the more we learn about a topic the more the language we use will evolve however language is vitally important when working in this arena, you know, because it has to be a restorative approach. And this is advocated by the, the CSA Centre, the Lucy Faithful Foundation, Thriving Survivors. There are a lot of different organisations that recognise that when sibling sexual behaviour exists within a family setting, it always has to be restorative. The approaches always have to be about healing and moving forward rather than um, punitive measures and retribution. Okay. Okay. Wow. So that's an, another term to, 
terminology that is is i think so much better isn't it sibling sexual abuse and sibling sexual behavior but my question then is if we're going to say that it's not abuse because it's a child displaying that harmful behavior do we ever think about or should we be also i'm just trying to think about how that wording would land ah here's here's my question then do we call the person that's on the receiving end of that sexual behavior harmful sexual behavior do we call them a victim it's the child who has been harmed yeah so in terms of sibling sexual behavior it can be abusive okay so that's at the other end of this spectrum that we're thinking of so it can be abusive behavior there's a lot of different key components to that such as age difference power dynamics um developmental um where where they are developmentally yeah there's lots of different factors so i'm not saying sibling sexual behavior can't ever be abusive and violent Mm. but it can also be on the more inappropriate end of the scale so that we've got to think of it as this this spectrum of behaviors that range from the abusive and violent all the way down to inappropriate Right. And could inappropriate, could you give me an example of what an inappropriate sexual behavior would be? Would that be stemming from, um, would that be stemming from the child's natural curiosity? It can be. I mean, this is an emerging research area, you know, that we we know very little about sexual behavior. I think there's something else to keep in mind as well, especially when we're considering children and sexual behaviors. Quite often, it might not be for sexual gratification. Right. There might be intimacy needs, there might be connectivity needs, but also wow. the influence of outside factors. It might sit within a wider um, a wider environment of family dysfunction. Wow. You know, so that the, the behaviour is not seen as bad. That we also have to have the pornography discussion uh, <laughs> about how that's influencing children and young people. And you know, we've recently been just starting to look at pornography and step sister, stepbrother, um, porn and what that's doing to young people that might be predisposed to these behaviours. They have readily access to their siblings and then they're being informed by this type of pornography. Um, And it seems to be escalating in popularity. I can't believe it. I, I I just feel so sad about the pornography discussion when it's readily available to minors. Mm-hmm. And it's all on their phone and they can consume as much of this thrilling, absolutely captivating material before they've even had sex, mm-hmm. before they've even yeah. kissed a girl. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is with pornography, I think sometimes the discussions in wider society have got it a bit wrong. But sometimes the, the discussions around pornography are, don't watch pornography, we need to stop pornography. That's never going to happen. Yes, I agree. Too late. It's a multi-million pound industry, so it's not going away. Children and young people, you can't take away their smartphones. That's just not going to solve the problem. What you do is push it more underground. And so when they see something that upsets them or they want to explore, there's too much shame involved or they don't want to come to you to talk to you about it. So there's no safe spaces. So what we've got to do with porn is take a harm reduction approach, recognise it's happening, recognise that children and young people are probably going to see pornography, whether intentionally or unintentionally, by the time they're 18, Mm. and educate them at a very young age Mm. in terms of 
you know, what's out there. Yeah. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with um, a, p- a parent not so long ago about this, you know, concerned about early education on pornography with children and young people. Um, and the conversation has got to be, do you want them to see it first or do you want us to educate them about it right. first? Right. This is what we've got to recognise, especially in the arena of sibling sexual behaviour. This is a hugely popular area in pornography and very under-researched. Wow. Um, there's, I'm, I'm working with um, someone called Amy Adams at the moment. So she's studying the life course of sibling um, sexual behaviour and, and sibling relationships. Uh, and we've just been having these conversations with Kira McCartan this week about the, how prolific sibling pornography is and sibling pornography, but there's wow. very little research out there. Okay, so for the many parents on my platform that will be listening to this and just becoming so afraid and worried and scared about their sons and their daughters and how they're interacting uh, to each other, um, can we open up the conversation on on a little bit more about what they could be aware of or, or, or even how they can come to this kind of discussion from any angle? Yeah, I think the key thing is safe spaces. For young people, whether that's in the home or whether that's at school or in a youth centre, you know, a safe space where a young person can feel able to say, I've seen this. I've seen this and I want to make sense of it okay. rather than telling them don't watch it, turn right. it off. Right. You know, because it just pushes it underground and it, it causes shame, which means they won't seek out information and support, you know. So it's it's key to, to open the conversation without shame. Okay, now to go to the next step of that, where what the effects of watching that type of material or being exposed to something or even a playground conversation that could lead a son or a daughter to do something to another son or a daughter. That just seems like such a complex situation, even if we're talking about inappropriate sexual yeah. behaviour, that's something we want to stop too, right? We yeah. want to stop the whole spectrum. Yeah. And so um, let's... Let's go to to the end of the spectrum that's inappropriate sexual behaviour. Um, with with a conversation to uh, young children about abuse, sex, consent, body awareness, any of those conversations already being very awkward and already, you know, something that we want to avoid. This is even greater, yeah. you know. And, and, you know, would there be anything you'd like to say about about that yeah i think what's what's really interesting and, and the findings that came out of the the national study that we did talks to the lack of confidence that professionals have in this field so some of our findings were you know that there has to be a whole family approach to this you know okay. because quite often in the in the csa space the child sexual abuse space you know this is very specific work yes children that have been abused However, when it comes to sibling sexual behaviour and that happening, it happens within a family. You know, mm. so quite often you've got parents or step parents that love both of the children. Huh. You know, so so the, there's your, there's your first layer of complexity. Then there's the professional anxiety that exists around this. So in the study that we did initially, we found that professionals would either catastrophize, so any kind of sexual behaviour. They would remove the child, take them out of the school, take them out of the family home. Uh, they would minimise it and just say, oh, you know, it's just play between siblings. 
But one of the findings that really struck me is that they would exaggerate the behaviours to access services because there's very little services. So at first I thought, gosh, that's terrible. Mm. But then I had to take a step back as a human being and think, mm. well, actually, what would I do? What mm. would I do? If I'm, I've got this family as a social worker that needed help and support. And the only way I could access that specific support was to exaggerate the child's behaviour. Wow. Which is, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It's wow. a complex situation for professionals to be in. But this is because of uh, the context that this exists within. There's a postcode lottery with support. So there's some really good um, good practice going on in the sibling sexual uh, behaviour space. So like I said, we've got Lucy Faithful Foundation, Driving mm. Survivors, we've got Be Safe, we've got NCATS. But these are pockets of really good practice. And if you don't live in those areas, you're going to be working with professionals that don't know very little about this. You know, the, we found that the professional confidence came from uh, experience rather than training in the mm. area. So there's no training for professionals or very little in this area. Mm. So that they were the key findings. So I think what we've got to think about when we think, you know, how will a professional approach inappropriate sexual behaviour? We've got to take a further step back and think, actually, does the professional have any understanding of the, the complexities that exist around sibling sexual behaviour in terms of all of the family dynamics? And I think it's really key to mention here that it's thought to be the most common form of intrafamilial sexual abuse and behaviour. Wow. What's intrafamilial, and the definition so, um, of that? So abuse and, and uh, adverse sexual behaviours that okay. exist within a family. Okay. okay. So it's thought to be the most common form. Wow. With uh, we think, looking at the research, at least one in five young people will experience this. So this tells us then that's two children, isn't it, in the one wow. in five, you know. But there's very little research in the area. You know, this is an emerging research area. However, this problem has been around for a long time. So it's not a problem that's mm. just emerged. The problem's mm. always been there. We're mm. just all of a sudden shining a light on it. Oh, wow. By the way, when you just said one in five, which means two in five. Mm. Yeah, of course. Uh, um, so, so we're in the Stone Ages with the conversation around the sexual abuse of children as a whole. Is my is my view, um, and we're even more in the Stone Ages with sibling sexual harmful behaviour, sibling sexual abuse, and why is this such a taboo? I think. That, yeah, there's just so many layers to that question, isn't there? I think people, first of all, can't accept within society that children can display sexual behaviours. I mean, okay. I see that in the other work in the other work that I do in terms of relationships and sex education, um, you know, sexuality in children and young people. So, first of all, there's children and sex, and they're mutually exclusive in a conversation, aren't they? Even yeah. when we're talking about teenagers. Yeah. So there's that element. There's also this kind of romantic idea of the sibling relationship mm. as well so again it conflicts with this wider societal perspective of how the family should look how sibling relationships should work and then there's the added complexity that within wider society we find it very difficult to talk about sexual behaviors anyway mm. even healthy sexual behaviors between mm. adults you know <laughs> so so it's, it's multi-layered and there's this expectation on a family to act in a certain way and to be a certain way so there's a lot of pressures around that so that's why it's seen as such a taboo. But this is what makes it so difficult for professionals to talk about, so difficult for families to talk about. But also in terms of interventions, that's what makes it difficult because 
quite often, well, not quite often, but sometimes the child who has been harmed is also the child who is carrying out the harm. Okay. In Now, the child that has been harmed mm -hmm. is carrying out harm in another situation? Oh, sorry, yeah. So the child who's carrying out the harm yeah. to another sibling yeah. may have been sexually harmed as yes. well. Yes, yes. Yeah. So there's, they've got this, and, you know, we, we're still looking at the language around this, so it's this dual status, but we don't think that's the right terminology to use. But okay. at the moment, you know, we, we, we're still working that out, but they've kind of got they've got a foot in both camps and what really needs to happen in that respect is that the whole child needs to be treated and have an intervention with the whole family mm. rather than go to one service for the harmed bit and one service mm. for the harmer bit you know mm. so it's again there's another complexity to this mm. um <clears throat> i think as well it's probably worth mentioning that we as a result of all of the research that we carried out and all of these findings, we then developed a sibling sexual behaviour mapping tool. Okay. Looked at all of these different dimensions, it's freely available mm. um, for social workers and maybe teachers want to have a look, but it's, it's mainly, it's not to be used with children and their families, but it's for a professional to step back and have a look at all of these different aspects. So to look at uh, what abuse took place or, or sexual behaviour took place, family dynamics and parenting, home circumstances and housing, education, health and development, the social context. And to look at this from a strengths-based approach, so mm. to look at the issues, but to look at the strengths and support around all of these domains, to look at the impact, and then to look at all the different levels of support that's needed. So again, you know, like I'm saying, this is, this is so complex because it sits in a family. So mm. it needs a family intervention, but it's also complex because it's multi-systemic. There's lots of different areas that need exploring. Okay. Um, and, you know, professionals need very specific action points going forward mm. that are unique to each of the families that they work with. So this is what that mapping tool we produced. Uh, so I produced that with the Abigail Sennon. Um, and we're looking at moving that forward and developing that further. Okay, and we'll put the link in the description for that mapping tool for anybody who wants to check that out. When we start talking about the child that has been on the receiving end of that harmful sexual mm -hmm. sexual behaviour, or even the other side of the spectrum, which we're calling abusive sexual behaviour, mm -hmm. right? For that, let's say, young boy or young girl, and let's just say for this example, it was an older sibling that did that to them, or even you know around their age, doesn't matter. Um, I can only imagine how confusing that must be for that child because, yeah. you know, it's your brother, it's your sister. You're meant to have a brother-sister relationship, but now you've had all these things done to you. And, and uh, yeah, is there anything about that yeah, you want so, to say? Yeah, the, the, so like I said, Amy Adams is looking into this more specifically, but when we look at the sibling relationship within a sibling sexual behaviour context, that isn't everything about the sibling relationship. So they might watch TV together, right. they might part together. You know, that, so there'll be like a whole picture of things they like about their sibling and they enjoy, but mm. this will be a component that they don't. And don't get me wrong, you know, it, it can't always be a process where everybody stays together. Sometimes it is right for the child to be removed. Sometimes it is right for, for them never to, to um, kind of come together as a family again. So I'm not sitting here saying this is a perfect scenario of, getting a family back together, sometimes that's not the right thing to mm, do, mm. but it's very context dependent and specific to each family. But mm. you're absolutely right when 
you talk about the sibling relationship, there's a complexity around that as well, mm. you know, because there will be components or there mo- probably are components of the sibling relationship that they like. Mm. Yeah, the play, like you say, the play, they're going to the park, they're watching the movie on the Friday night, they're best friends. Mm. But then there's it's this, might be, might be. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 but there's this, compo- like you said, there's this component to the relationship that is that is uh, harmful or abusive. When it comes to the abusive end of the spectrum, um, we're talking about younger children. Mm-hmm. When when does the category? When are they not categorised as children? Is that sixteen or eighteen? This this is such a complex debate in in this arena. So. In terms of the United Nations rights of the child states that they are a child until they're 18. Okay. Okay, so in terms of sibling sexual behaviour and abuse, we have to treat them as children under the age of 18. However, in the other arena that I work in, in terms of healthy sexual behaviours in adolescence, this is a very different conversation. In this conversation we're having now, they're children up until the age of 18. Mm. But also I think we've got to remember that sibling sexual behaviour and abuse quite often isn't disclosed until people are adults. And that's because of a number of factors. There's taboo around it. They may not want to disclose because of the issues it will cause within the family. Um, They might not want to disclose because they don't realise that it's an abusive or an inappropriate behaviour because it exists within the wider family dysfunction. And this is where really good, early, robust relationships uh, sex and health education comes in so right. if we're educating children from a very young age they're going to be able to recognize this a, a lot earlier so there's a lot of different um elements to why people don't disclose until they're adults but when that happens what we found in the research is that it's had a real detrimental impact on their life course because right. they haven't disclosed early because the support hasn't been put in when they were children, you know, so so it sent their 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 life course on a very different track, mm. Mm. and that's something we have to bear in mind as well with sibling sexual behaviour and abuse. My area of expertise focuses on the under 18s. However, mm. there's a huge area of research and support that is needed on the other end of that from the for the adults that are disclosing for both those that have been harmed and mm. those that harmed when they were children. Wow. And this is a piece of the puzzle that is missing. Wow. In research is getting the voice of those children that have harmed. Wow. Because when you think about, that's so fascinating to me because, you know, when you think about yourself and yourself as a child and maybe you said there's there's a moment that you always remember you said something to someone or you treated some someone in some way in class and you were like 10 years old you didn't even know what you were doing you know you you didn't really understand it and you know that you know that 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 person really carried whatever you said to them you broke their pencil in anger or you nicked their pencil case whatever it be but you you look back at yourself at 10 years old and, and you think, oh, but I just didn't know. I just didn't understand. But when it comes to sexual harmful behavior or abuse, it's almost like, you know, how, what are you supposed to say to someone? Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't know. You know, it's so mm-hmm. confusing and complex. This is difficult. Mm, really difficult, really difficult. But I think the first step is understanding and, and acknowledging that it's difficult mm. and that it's complex. Um, and be led as well by those 
victim survivors and those that have carried out harm. You know, there's a there's a huge advocate in this area called uh, Nancy Morris. So she's a big driver of of getting this this last taboo out there in the okay. you know in terms of conversations that people are having. And I think that's that's really important. It's it's to recognise it's complex. There's no easy there's no simple solution mm. but we have to keep having these conversations mm. in my arena we have to keep doing the research mm. the professionals have to keep doing the work and recognizing that it's complex there needs to be more training mm. um but it, you know it's like you said this is really complicated and especially mm. it's unlikely if somebody's sexually harmed a sibling and i'm saying unlikely not impossible mm. that they will go on to be a sexual okay Okay, so that's right. something we've got to bear in mind as well. But it's it's complex and there's harm on on all levels. Mm. Wow. And with the wider family and other siblings that are within the family. Another complexity to this is how do you define a sibling? Okay. Um, so, mm, continue, please, yeah. <laughs> okay, so a sibling, we in our research, so we asked, 30 professionals how to define a sibling when in, uh, working with, in, with sibling sexual behaviour and abuse. And uh, everybody said something different. So how do we define a sibling? It's one of those terms we use all the time, but actually when we try to pin it down, it's really fluid. It's really difficult. So is a sibling, do you have to have the same biological mother and father? Or can you be half brother, half sister? Oh. Uh, or half sibling? Can you be a cousin? that's been brought up with you in the house? Can you have a sibling that doesn't live with you and comes to visit? So Mm. same mum and dad that lives in different houses then comes to visit. Mm. Can it be um, a foster sibling? Mm. So again, there's an added complexity. So um, yeah, it's an allodized advocate that you always ask the child how they would define a sibling. You know, Mm. someone you would call a brother, a sister, a sibling. But Mm. again, if you can see the added complexity there, again, you know, what does sibling actually mean? Even in wider society, what does that mean? Mm. You know, but when we bring it into this arena, it becomes particularly um, difficult. Wow. And and when you asked me that question, my initial, my instant reaction was, well, of course, it's just the blood relation, right? Mm. I didn't think about having different dads or having different mums or you, like you say, two, two blood relation, uh, sorry, a foster, a foster brother or sister or, the cousin that's always lived with you. How is it for parents, you know, that that have uh, 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 doing their best as parents? They they've managed to successfully create a great family home, mm-hmm. loving environment, and then they find out that this has been going on upstairs behind closed doors. Yeah, this it can be especially crushing for parents mm. because you love both of the children. Mm. And you can see that the act is wrong, but you you love your child. But there's very little support out there for parents mm. and carers in this area. You know, mm. there's very little avenues for them to go to. Also, you know, there's that added uh, stigma of feeling feeling that you might look, that you've failed as a yes. parent if this is happening. Because yes. we're not talking about this in wider society. There's no support. <clears throat> there's very little support groups out there. There's no, there's none really that I've heard of. Mm. Um, where parents can go and, and talk this out and unpick it. But this is why we advocate, you know, it has to be a whole family approach to right. intervention. This has to be the family that's working together towards healing. Right. Um, but again, like I said, there's the postcode lottery. There are some really good mm. pockets 
of good practice uh, where this is carried out and then other times you're lost and the child is removed from the home and they're treated as a as a sex offender you know so so <clears throat> it depends where you live mm, mm. Um, but there's very little support for families and there's also the wider family as well it might not just be the parents that are affected by this there might be other family members mm. that are affected and when we talk about the whole family approach i'm not just talking about like the nuclear family you have to be led with by who you're working with so they might have, I don't know, an uncle who's really close or, a, yeah. or an aunt as well. Yeah. You know, that they count as the family and that's this the family um this family ecosystem. Yes. That needs to be accounted for as well when it comes to healing. Oh my goodness. I've just thought of a situation that would be absolutely horrifying. So let's say you've got um your two children and you've just found out there's been harmful sexual behaviour from one to another. And once that is now being investigated or trying to be organized and the process is being gone through, then all your aunties and your uncles and your, they don't want that child around their, their children, right? So cousins, you can't have that child who displayed harmful sexual behavior. Now you're worried about that child being around any other of the children in your family. It must be so, so, uh, so, so tough. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we, we tend to, a lot of the professionals do it in some professionals do it in this, arena because of the lack of training and knowledge they'll catastrophize but we tend to do that anyway within wider society yeah things like this because of fear because it's yeah because of the lack of understanding i'm not saying that there shouldn't be safety parameters put in place there absolutely should that should be first and foremost okay you know so so safety planning should be part of an intervention like like what type of safety parameters no Thinking, it depends on the behaviour. Okay, this, yes. is, this is completely contextual. Yes, we're thinking about you know where do they sleep at night? Right. Where do they play? Mm. Where are they on their own? Mm. You know these things, but it's, it'll be different for each family. Yes, yes, um, yes. But that's what I mean. You know, it's, it's a, and, and the type of behaviour and why the behaviour is happening. Um, all of these things need to be taken into account rather than demonising the child. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's a couple of places I want to take this. Um, when it comes to harmful sexual abuse, or, or sorry, sibling sexual abuse, the other mm-hmm. end of the spectrum, would you say, um, could you say that it's more learned than they just came up with the idea? Is that yeah. an answer? Is that a question that no, could be answered, or is that? There's not enough research out there. For me to answer that, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there's, and I think you know, if we if we look at the the work of Simon Hackett in um, harmful sexual behaviours in children, there is no one type, right? Of child, there are no key indicators, right? Um, but we need to do more research in this area to yeah. find out actually are there, yeah, are there are, are there reasons why? But like I said, we've got to bear in mind that quite often, or you know, it's not always for sexual gratification. Yeah, that's really interesting and a great point for us to understand. Yeah. So if it's not always for sexual gratification, because let's say they're prepubescent, as mm. an example, then what is the is the driver? It might be intimacy. It might be feeling close to somebody. It might be right. seen in terms of pornography. Right. It might be they're situated within a dysfunctional family unit. Right. So behaviour such as this is the norm. Right. Okay. 
Okay. And, and you know, it, that it draws parallels to the work that I'm doing with my own story going around and yeah. telling it because, you know, we're all desperate to know the common signs, what the what the grooming process is. And it's just so complicated with every child. It's different because the child is different. The mm. offender slash perpetrator is different. And, and so uh, it's a very complicated situation. Are there any... I, I I know that we're, 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 as we mentioned, so in the Stone Ages and at the beginning of this research, are there any statistics um, that have been drawn up on this? Um, the one, so the, the question I really want to ask is, is it mostly boys on girls? Yeah, I think that the research is indicating that it is. But again, it's early stages in terms of what we're looking at now. And as well in a post-COVID world, it's very, we, we live in a very different world where a lot of behaviours have been pushed online as well. Oh, so we yeah. need to embrace this. But also, you know, when um, when it is girls that are carrying out harmful sexual behaviour towards a sibling, that's an, another layer of taboo. So that's right. another thing that really isn't talked about a lot. And that's the same as any kind of sexual abuse when it's carried out by a female. Yeah. There's a there's an extra layer there as well, yeah. and that's something we've got to take into consideration when we're looking at numbers and we're, and we're looking at yeah you know it might be boys that are carrying out carrying it out. The chances of it of people coming forward are lower if it's a female doing it, and also yeah. it, it tends to be more minimised as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. Would you have any advice for me? as I go around and speak uh, to students, right, which is growing for me now, and the structure of what I present to these students, which is year seven and above, right? So age 12, 12 and above. I don't do uh, ages younger than that because I don't feel like my material is suitable for them yet. I'm still working on that. So let's say we take a group of year nines. Yeah. Now, after actually just during this conversation, and I know after this conversation, it's almost like I want to put a little bit of something in about this. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so the structure of my presentation is um, storytelling at the start. The first half is storytelling. So I just tell my story because I think that's valuable, you know, for people to hear real life accounts and inspirational too. And then afterwards, I talk about things like, you know, what's your, uh, what, what's your behavior like? online what do you reckon about this what do you reckon about that because i want them to get into a conversation where they're like oh i want to answer that and you know get involved and create a constructive conversation i would love to put something in there about sibling sexual behavior slash abuse mm -hmm. and um do you think first of all do you think that would be valuable and and do you think that or do you think that would be too much for them to hear it's not too much for them to hear. I mean, quite often we deny children their agency. Right. Children need to hear this from younger than year seven. You know, I'm a huge advocate, like I said, for, for early relationships, mm. um, sex and health education. I might have to think about this and come back to you on it, but my initial thoughts are, yes, absolutely, we need to talk about it, mm. but there has to be the safe space afterwards if right. children are going to come forward. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be talked about. Mm. It needs to be spoken about in the context of consent and how people make you feel and about mm. social taboos and stigma. But for me, if you're talking to children about anything in child sexual abuse arena, 
there's got to be this pickup space after and yes. either staff ready yes. to do that. Do you, have you got all the signposting ready? Because there's, right. there's lots of, like I said, things online um, where children can go. So I think initially, yeah, I think we need to be talking to children and young people about it, but we can't we can't leave them with it. Right, yeah, yeah. There's got to be a follow-up. Yeah, so the so the conversation is extremely important that we have with them, but the the safe space and the follow up and the support system afterwards for anybody that does want to come forward needs to be there too. Yeah, and to explore this discussion. So you know, if you're if you're talking about this to children and young people within a school setting, can the teachers then pick this up in a session afterwards? Yeah, yeah, in a very specific session, you know, about family dynamics, yeah, about siblings, you know, in that wider context. Yeah. expectations but also in the in the in the same respect we can't deny them their agency Mm-mm-mm. we quite often think that they're empty vessels yeah and we know best and we don't yeah no we really don't you know yeah. especially in, with young people you know i'm 44 now i know nothing about <laughs> their world yeah. they should be leading us they've got the agency yes so we should absolutely be talking to them about it but we can't just leave it with them yes yeah i find what That's you're saying really- very I find what you're saying very inspirational. So when um, we are encouraging parents to talk to their young children about mm-hmm. private areas, body awareness, consent, and those conversations, um, I'm going to say now, after learning, um, continuing to learn from you, that we should also also put in there, that doesn't just mean with you and a stranger, mm-hmm. or you and a mate, or you and some older that you're talking to. This is between you and everyone, including mm-hmm. everyone in this home. Yep. But these conversations with some people are notoriously hard to have with their own children. Yeah. You know, because we live in a society that doesn't openly talk about sex yeah. and sexual behaviours, that there's this huge amount of shame anyway coupled with it. And, you know, if you're 10, you might not want to hear your mum or your dad yeah. or your talking to you about sex. You know, you might just want to crawl under the table. Yeah. But it depends how it's framed, you know, and we can't be heaping all this onto the shoulders of parents and they think, oh, my gosh, we've got to talk to them about this and I feel really uncomfortable because if you feel uncomfortable talking about this, the conversation won't be productive. Yes. However, this has to come from lots of different areas. You know, the, as a parent, you could go and talk to the school and say, look, I'm not comfortable talking about this. How can we work together? Amazing. How can, how can this work in a school setting? Can you mm. address these things? Mm. So parents can do something, things, even if they don't feel like they can directly look them in the eye mm. and say, mm. this is what ha- what's happening. This is what consent is. This is what sexual behaviour is. You've got to feel comfortable. But they can approach the school. They can... They can approach the school and be part of um, developing policy right. in the school policies in talking about this kind of thing. Um, so they can be proactive in looking for the spaces where their children can talk about it if they feel they can't. Right. So it's not like a dead end. That's there great. are ways to do it. If, That's even great. If the parents feel they can't do it themselves. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh, can you talk to us? Can you bring us some more of your like uh, research or the latest things that you're working on or anything else you'd like to bring to the table? Well, yeah. So I'm working. I'm working on quite a lot of things. Yeah, please. Um, I think the, one of the main areas of my work at the moment is relationships, health, and sex education. Okay. We're currently waiting for the new guidance to come out. Um, okay. I'm a huge advocate of very early education in this space because it can be a really good safeguarding mechanism. 
um, because of the way that media is at the moment. Children are seeing things earlier and earlier, and we've mm. got to get in there quick mm. to support them. Uh, I do a lot on um, um, masculinity okay, um, and uh, misogyny, mm. so how, how all of this is interlinked to these society. And mm. this kind of links back to all of the conversations in this area, you know, that we some people find these things very difficult to talk about. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the, the, I, there's quite a lot in this arena that I'm doing, but and one of the, my main passions is youth voice and listening to young people and being really driven by them, and they should be leading and, but, but we have the platform. So we have an yeah. obligation to amplify their voices, but we have to understand that we know nothing in this mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so so the sibling sexual abuse subject is not your only subject that you that you no. took that you research. Now, what are you doing? What's the latest things that you're doing with that particular subject? With the sibling sexual behavior. Yeah. yeah, so we're we're looking now more at the influence of pornography. Okay. We want to know next, you know, what type of behaviours are being um, displayed. You know, mm. what what's going on between the siblings. Um, we need more of a, an understanding on the life course impact. Mm. And the key missing part of the puzzle is the voice of the child who is harmed. That's where there is no research. Because nobody's coming forward. No, and it's it's really ethically it's it's. A really difficult one to negotiate. Okay. Um, you know, if if you talk to adults that carry mm. harm as a child, you know, that's going to have to be through an agency that already knows of them, or mm. do you have to then disclose? Um, it's difficult to talk to children and young people. Not impossible. So it has to be constructed properly. Mm. Um, but that's something that you know we're, we're looking at in this field as a whole. You know, capturing that voice. And, and looking at the reasons behind behind mm. why this behaviour was carried out. Is it possible for you to explain in some way um, what actual acts would constitute for different parts of the spectrum? Well, it's really difficult to do that. I did, um, yeah, it's when, when behaviours are listed, it becomes... Do you think that's not, it's not helping the conversation? No, and I'm reluctant to do it because if... Which is absolutely if fine. Say, so yeah. if I say a, a, a behaviour is inappropriate and yet yeah. a professional and a child is thinking that this is abusive. Yeah. Our dynamic. Yeah. Excuse that professional judgment. So to have a, a kind of prescriptive list, I think would be unhelpful rather than helpful because it then again, it takes away that professional judgment. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You really yeah. Yeah. So so um what are the parameters that a professional will use to put the behaviour slash abuse on the spectrum? Or do they even need to do that? Yeah, I mean it's it's really it's a useful framework for them to use as a thinking tool in terms right. of power dynamics, impact on the children, um, the the behaviour that's being carried out. Um but also they've got to look at all those different dimensions that I mentioned earlier that yes. are in the marketing tools, so education, housing, uh, health, social context, family dynamics. So these are the things they should be looking at, but it's it's listening to the child who has been harmed, mm. but also bearing in mind that the child who was harmed needs the support as well. Okay, and where do the complications come? Um, so we, 
are we saying that early intervention, if we can get to the child as soon as possible, mm -hmm. meaning once the situation is over, let's, let's say the situation is over and, um, the child is now growing into into a young adult and then an adult the earlier we can get to them or the earlier they speak out to address the situation the better mm. so you know to get to them at 20 years old is better than 30 years old yeah right something that i'm really interested in when i think about my own story is i started the uh, first time i spoke out about it was 27 mm. now i'm i wonder what you think about this because i'm thinking if somebody had said to me at 17 you were sexually abused do you remember right mm -hmm. i'm not sure i would have been able to handle it at that age mm. so i i do agree that you know there's a conversation here so if the earlier somebody speak and that that's a this is a complication i have in my own work with speaking mm. to these students because essentially when i go and tell my story what i'm saying to them is if this has happened to you reach out we can help you mm -hmm. but is there a is there a complexity where like at certain age maybe earlier ages you're not ready to handle that trauma mm -hmm. yeah and that, it's a really it's a really valuable point isn't it but i think as well if we're saying to children come forward there's got to be the support structures in place yeah 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 they come yeah. forward and there's nothing so yeah you know, yeah there's, there's got to be that understanding and the the support ready yes as well for them so yeah. but yeah you know that that again is another complexity this mm. whole issue that mm. needs a lot of thought but it is better for them to come forward sooner because the research is showing us the longer it goes on the more it impacts on their lives yes okay okay and that's that's for me that is uh the great point of it you know the longer it goes on unattended to whether that may be too much for that 17 year old jeremy to hear rather than mm. 27 year old jeremy in that decade of it being uncatered for or unsupported things would have happened that we could have prevented in personality possibly possibly yeah. possibly it's always yeah yeah it's, ne it's never a, a definite answer okay here's a question that is like um <laughs> I, I would not even know how to how to answer it i don't even think we could ever answer this but do you think that sibling sexual abuse has been around forever or it's a new thing to modern life? It's not new. Okay. It's not new. So it's been around for a long time. Okay. It's, just, it's the research that's new and that we're recognising yeah. that it's endemic. I don't know if it's been around forever. But yeah. The concept of children has changed in the, oh. the 17th century as well. So we oh. how we think about children, how we mm. think about vulnerability over mm. the years, um, and how we... Think about the family unit. So, for example, pre-17th century, the concept of children that we have now didn't exist. Wow. You know, so, you know, so it's very difficult to answer that question anyway because there's complexities around how we think yeah. about family, sibling, child, um, and how they are socially constructed. Okay, so in my ignorance, please excuse me, are we saying that, like, in the 17th century, um, you know, for for a 15 year old to be married off would have been possibly would have been normal something like that is, is that is... yeah so the concept of children overall 
is relatively new in history. You know, the, the, it's not a biological state of being. We've got infancy, and then they were generally seen as young adults. I mean, we used to send them up chimneys, didn't we, not so long ago, and huh. they used to work in factories. So this whole perception of the child has changed dramatically. Wow. It's, it's, very, it's, it's difficult to say, but, but in terms of the last 50 years, we can see that sibling sexual behaviour has been there and it's been endemic. But now we're realising that we've got to do something about okay. it. Okay. Is it one of the reasons why we don't want to look at this, why we just want to turn the other way? It's unbelievable that it's actually happening um, for, for, you know, us average general public that haven't got an academic interest in this or, or we don't know anybody that works in this field. Is it because as adults, we are repulsed by the thought, by sexual thoughts about our family? Yeah. Right? So that's one of the elements, you know, so there's the thought of, um, children being sexual beings, so they're too they're yes. exclusive. Um, there's how we perceive sex anyway. Yes. And then there's this the, the sibling and the family is seen as sacred, isn't it? And we've evolved not to want to have sexual yes. relationships with our family, just you know, as well because of the mixing of the genes is unhealthy, mm. isn't it? With families. Mm. So yeah, I think that, that it's multi-level. In why people like really can't handle the conversation or, or find it particularly disturbing. And yeah. that's because of all of these different layers. Yeah, brilliant. Is there anything else, Sophie, that you um, would like to talk about that we haven't covered? No, I think there's. it's just bearing in mind, you know, that when this happens within a family unit, that's a family that's suffering, that's children that's suffering. Yeah. And to condemn and to judge is really damaging yeah. and unhelpful and we've got to approach this problem with compassion yeah um first and foremost and also you know recognizing that how important healing is for everybody as yeah. a whole family yes i completely agree i found everything that you're saying super interesting and i've learned a lot i'm going to watch this back quite a few times myself because there's so much information in there thank you for that how can people find you is there anything you'd like to direct people to yeah, so all of the work that I've done uh, in the sibling arena is on my work staff page. So if you just put my name into the un and the University of Birmingham, that'll come up. That's where you can find the mapping tool. Um, I'm on Twitter, Dr. Sophie KH, LinkedIn, and uh, Instagram, Dr. Sophie Kinghill. So you'll you'll find me because I think my, my surname's quite unusual. So if people just put it in, uh, I'm sure they'll find some of my work in that in this that's, area. That's brilliant, Sophie. Thank you so much, and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I wonder what you think about that conversation now that you've got to the end of it. I was really pleased with how it went. I was also really pleased that somebody like Dr. Sophie King-Hill would come onto my podcast, an academic working in this field, to come and teach us and give us an insight into the research that's being done currently. But also, as you heard through that, throughout the podcast, the language that we should be using. Because as I open this podcast with, this is a taboo topic inside an already taboo topic. Now, please don't forget about the websites jeremyindica.com something to say official.com check them out please hit those like buttons the comment buttons please rate this podcast it all helps with kicking the algorithm into gear we are seriously moving forward with every single conversation that we have on this podcast and i thank you for the support see you next time